0: Father, we are grateful that we have gathered here, that you have brought us together again. And small though we may be, Father, we are, we are able to praise you in our voices and, and in song. We're able to pray, Father, in the Spirit. We're able to study your word. And in those ways, Father, we're able to do everything and anything that every church does. And to do it, Father, by the Spirit, in the way you intend We're not perfect, Father. We have many ways in which we should and and could serve you better. But, Father, that's why we're here, because we want to do that. We want to serve you better. We want to know you better, reflect you in our lives better, serve you in a a more pleasing way and with our whole heart. And, Father, I pray that's our attitude as we come to your text this morning. We we spend time this morning, Father, at your feet because we know you can teach us in ways that no man can. And that through that teaching, Father, you can make us alive in Christ. Not simply in our faith, Father, but in our words and in our actions. So, Father, teach us this morning. Let the Spirit guide all that we say and all that we hear. But more importantly, Father, let the Spirit drive us to to work and to act in ways that are in accordance with what we hear. So that we may be your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to be honest with you, after what we all learned in James last week, I'm sincerely surprised that you guys have come back. (laughs) Wouldn't have blamed you if you didn't. I felt convicted over what James brought us last week, and I I have to acknowledge it's not easy, it's tough material. I I didn't structure my teaching last week, or frankly even this week, with the intent to entertain you all or to feed you a bunch of lighthearted stories. Sometimes scripture comes at the intent to encourage us, lift us up, walk us out the door feeling better about ourselves. But honestly, that's not usually what scripture is trying to do, because usually what we like to think about ourselves isn't what we should think about ourselves. And and if we're going to get past ourselves and see Christ living in us, we have to be convicted a little along the way. And that's what we felt last week. That's what I felt anyway. What I have been doing is I've been wrestling with this thing for hours. I told several people this morning, if I sound a little tired, it's because I didn't get to bed till like 3.30 last night. And it's because I couldn't fall asleep. My mind is just, God had just brought me into this text over the last week. and I've been racing in my mind over it because it's forced me to contend with some things, not only in my teaching, but in my own life. I I assume I'm not the only one. And I feel like that's my job, right? My job is to get this right as best I can. And then my job is to share it with you as God has revealed it to me. And misery loves company. If I'm going to be convicted over this, you guys are going to have to be convicted a little too. And I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to teach each of us what he wants us to do with it. And it does make for one heck of a downer sometimes if God is in the business of convicting. But if you're like me, that conviction eventually gives way to a kind of recognition, a thrilling recognition of just how awesome God is as he tries to do these works in our heart, of how important our life is to God in that we can live a life that glorifies him. And nothing is more important to God than his own glory. And the very fact that he would go out of his way through his, through his text, through the text of the scriptures, to cause us to think about how we should be living to glorify him is a, a piece of evidence for just how important our lives are to him, of just how much he cares about what we do and say for the sake of his glory. And I get excited a little at the prospect of serving him better in the days that he's given me here on, on earth because I look forward to the moment that I face him and I hope to hear that he is pleased with what I've done to serve him. We ended last week in verse 17 of chapter 2, and James had basically summed up his point at that moment in the text. He had said in verse 17 that faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Or the way I would say it is if our faith does not yield good works to the glory of God, it is a useless faith. It is dead in the sense that it bears no fruit, is useless. What good is it? It's useless for others, as James pointed out, because... Those who are in need for our works of charity are getting nothing when we do nothing. And it's also useless for ourselves because our opportunity for eternal reward will be based on the works we do in faith, Paul tells us. So if we aren't doing any works in faith, it's not doing us any good, not profiting us at all. And then lastly, and probably most importantly, a faith that is absent works is useless to God. Because as Jesus said in Matthew 516 he said let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven that light he talks about that's a symbol for our faith living in the world our gospel, the gospel living through men in the world he says shine that light the light of the gospel in you in such a way that the world will see good works and glorify God. So if we're not doing those works, God's not retain, receiving the glory He expects. So it's a useless, it's a dead faith. Now, as I reflected on that part of James's letter, I, I don't know about you, but I was forced to confront several assumptions I had made about my own life, but also about Scripture. For example, I had to wonder if my works are truly pleasing to the Lord. I, I hope He's pleased in the fact that I have given my life in part to teaching and to preaching. But even if that were true... That's not the full story, right? I had to start equating works in a broader context. I had to ask myself, what about my works as a husband? What about my works as a father? Or what about my secret thoughts, which are a work in itself? Will I be pleasing to Him in those areas of my life? Or what about my prayer life? What about the way I spend my money? Or about the way I spend my time apart from ministry? You see, the point is that as soon as I started to rest in one part of my life, oh, I'm I'm a pretty good teacher. I work hard at teaching the Bible, so I'm pleasing the Lord. But what would your wife say, Steve, about the way you do things that she needs done? There's got to be a thousand categories of living where if I really was sincere and transparent with myself, I'd have to come back to ask myself, what are my works really like to God? I have to reevaluate some things. And then in terms of Scripture, I found myself taking a second look at a number of passages in the New Testament where Jesus, or the writers of the New Testament letters, talk about this judgment seat moment. Remember last week we looked at how James said that the thing that we should be concerned with as a believer without works is that there is a judgment moment for us, just like there is for the unbeliever. Now, the judgment moment for the unbeliever is for an entirely different purpose, obviously. But we still have a judgment we face when the Lord evaluates our works and rewards us accordingly. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. He says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, to Christ. But then listen what he says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul says we should have our ambition as our ambition to be pleasing to Christ because we know one day we will be judged by him and we will be rewarded accordingly. And then he adds, whether good or bad, what he says is there can be a bad outcome to that judgment moment. And a bad judgment is the result of a Christian who lives a life without striving to please his master, a life lived without works. And Paul says, therefore, since we know that fear, that that anticipation of a judgment moment, we strive to do what God calls us to do, to persuade men to the gospel in Paul's case. You know, when you ask yourself, why did Paul place himself in harm's way over and over again? Why did he spend his whole life running all around Asia Minor uh, and present-day Europe? With the gospel, why did he devote his whole life to that stoning, shipwrecks, prison, starvation, all the things he lists? Why did he do all that? His number one reason, by his own words, knowing the fear of the Lord. I wonder how often we think like that as opposed to simply thinking of it from the positive. I think both are important. But never underestimate that there should be a fearful, respectful, awesome desire to please our Lord. Because we will face him one day. So, verse 17, James sums up his argument. He says, we must pay attention to how we respond to the tests that come along in our life, the tests we have of our faith. Take those tests seriously, just like you take a test in high school or college seriously. And he says, passing those tests is your opportunity to do a good work. He equates passing tests with good work. In fact, if we set our minds on the goal of living a good life as a Christian, a life of good works, then it means at all times asking ourselves, what do I do in this situation that pleases the Lord? And then James went further. He says, we must be dedicated to this path because we are going to be judged by a law of liberty and that judgment is not one for sin. It's a judgment of works, but there is the possibility of a bad outcome if we go into that moment not prepared. And he says, having faith, but not producing works means you have a dead faith. It's there. It's by itself. James says it's, it's present. It's not like it's not there. But it's useless to you, to God, and to others. And then James anticipates something. He's a smart man. Never mind the fact that he's guided by the Holy Spirit as he writes this. And in verse 18, where we pick up today, he anticipates what some might argue to refute his concern. To the Christian who hears this and says, you know what, James, I don't, I don't agree. I don't think we have to be so worried about whether we have good works or not. To that, he offers a rebuttal. So first, in verse 18, he gives the argument that some might make. And then moving on in verse 19, he gives the rebuttal. Look at verse 18. James 2.18 says, but someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. This is one of the verses I really wrestled over because it didn't seem to make sense at first to me. James is speaking here as if he were an objector. He's making the argument against himself for just a moment. Now, before I explain to you what the objector is saying, let me tell you that this verse and the ones that follow are often misunderstood based on my experience. And they're misunderstood even among some evangelical Christians, unfortunately. And to help clear things up, let me begin by asking you a question. How would someone object to James's teaching? What would be the, the natural objection? For example, would someone try to contradict James by proposing that it's perfectly okay to have faith without works? Would that be the logical counter-argument? Well, who would argue that? Has anyone ever argued that in your experience? It's perfectly fine for a Christian to be just a man or woman who rests on faith and never does any work. I've never heard that argument myself. And it doesn't make any sense. Why would anybody want to argue for that? So that's not the argument James is worried about either. In other words, what he's proposing in verse 18 is not that. He's not worried about that because no one in in their right mind would argue for that. Instead, James is worried about the opposite problem. James is worried that someone might argue there is no such thing as a believer who has faith without works. That's what James is worried about. James is worried that someone might come along and say, James, we don't need to worry about this supposed problem of a believer who has faith but no works. They don't exist. All believers will always have some measure of good works, James. So we don't have a problem here. We don't really have anything to worry about. You're talking about a hypothetical that does not exist. And so James asks the question in verse 18. He says, and and let me paraphrase what verse 18 is saying. The objector would say, you say, James, that a man may have faith by itself, but can that man show me his faith without works? No. How can you show faith without works? You can't, since faith is invisible itself. A believer can only show faith by works. And therefore, true faith must have works. And if a faith has no works, it's not a true faith. That's a a, a wordy way of saying what verse 18 is proposing. This principle that we have nothing to really worry about because this kind of a person just doesn't exist. If they don't have works, they're just not a believer. That's what James is worried about. James wants to raise this question because he knew it would be a thought in the church and actually, it has been a thought in the church, both in James's day, and it is still a common thought today. You will find Christians who believe and teach exactly that thought, which is why James raises it here so that he can put an end to it. Here's the counter-argument. Here's how he dispels it. Verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Verse 19, he refutes the argument. He does it so powerfully that he only needs that one verse. That one verse by itself puts an end to any suggestion that faith will always result in works. Let me show you how. He uses as an example here the demon realm. And he uses them as an example to disprove the objector's assumptions about a belief automatically producing a behavior that will be consistent with that belief. That's what the objector is essentially proposing, right? The objector is proposing that when you believe X, you will always operate or behave in a manner that is consistent with X. So if I believe in the gospel, I will have works consistent with that belief. And he says, oh, really? To begin with, he says, you, Mr. Objector or Miss Objector, he says, you believe God is one. He's referring here to something called the Jewish Shema. It comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. I'll just read the verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It's like the Jewish confession of faith. That's why it's called the Shema. It's often repeated by Jews in the sense that it was a way of expressing their belief in the God of Jehovah, the God of Israel. So they would say... Deuteronomy 6, 4. And so James is repeating that. Remember, it's a letter written to the Jewish Jewish church. And he says, you believe God is one. You say your confession. you, You express your faith. Okay, fine. That's good. But he now wants the reader to consider whether that belief in and of itself will always result in the right behavior. Or is it possible you can have a strong belief like the belief that God is one and yet act in ways that are inconsistent with that belief? Can you do that? To prove his point, James says, consider exhibit A, the demon realm. Now, demons are fallen angels. They were once in heaven with the rest of the angelic realm, serving the living God. They knew the goodness of God. They understood his power. And when Lucifer rebelled against God, a third of the angelic realm, we're told, rebelled with him. So they aligned with him against God and together this rebellious horde of angels have now come under God's judgment. They are appointed a place in the abyss, we're told they will ultimately be in the lake of fire in hell. That is the future for this realm of demons. They know that they certainly know who God is. They certainly understand his power. They uh, are awaiting that current judgment, waiting that future judgment by by serving Satan in the meantime. James points out, do you know those demons? They believe God is one. You notice that James didn't say they believe in the gospel. He's not talking about saving faith. He's just talking about belief in the general sense. When you believe in something, does that belief always arrive at a behavior consistent with that belief? He's just trying to deal with the general principle. And he says, the demons, they know God exists, They know he is the only true God. They've seen him. They have a knowledge from first-hand experience that we even lack at this point. They don't even require faith. you understand? The demons don't even need faith to understand that God is one. They've seen him. They have first-hand experience with him. They know he's real. They know he has real power. They know he will be their judge. They know all these things. There's a short passage out of Luke chapter 8 where Jesus comes along the man in the tombs who's indwelled by a legion of demons. Do you remember that? And he's naked and he's chained and he's all that, right? Very kind of interesting scene. But look at how it ends. Luke eight twenty-eight. The legion of demons inside the man. They see Jesus coming. Verse 28. He cried out and fell before him, before Jesus, and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Now, those were the demons speaking through him. And then it goes on for Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man for it had seized him many times and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion for many demons had entered him. Verse 31. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now, did you notice they immediately recognized Jesus? They knew him to be Lord. They called him by his name. They anticipated that he might torment them by sending them into the abyss, into hell. They knew all those things. Their belief in those things is 100% sure. They have no doubts. And then James says, they shudder. It's a unique word, actually, in the New Testament. It's only appearing here in James. It means to shiver in fear. Listen to what James is saying. These demons are absolutely certain of a coming judgment because of their rebellion. And as a result of that, they shiver in fear because they anticipate that coming judgment. And yet that belief has not stopped them from rebelling, has it? It has not brought them to repentance. They continue to rebel even today. They have a belief that knows rebelling equals judgment in the abyss But that belief is not driving the right behavior, is it? You can have a belief and know something for certain and still act in a very inconsistent way. That's the point he's making. He's saying you are proud of yourself because you think by faith that's automatically going to compel you into a life of works. Well, then how do you explain the demon realm? Beings that know God better than we even do at this point, at least in terms of first-hand experience. But that didn't stop them from rebelling against him. What a pointless act. Have you ever wondered about that? I have to admit, I have. I've wondered what was in the mind of Satan that he thought he could actually win. Why even take on the challenge? Because sometimes we act in ways that are inconsistent with our belief. So, the answer is no. You will not necessarily see behaviors consistent with faith. Now, some might argue Christians are different than demons because we have the Spirit indwelling us. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was given to ensure we would be brought to good works. But friends, Scripture never makes that promise. Nowhere in Scripture do we see uh, God telling us that the mere presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts by itself, will produce good works in our life. What it says is the Spirit is a deposit or a guarantee of our future inheritance in Christ, but it also teaches clearly that the degree of our inheritance, of our reward, is in our control, based on obedience. And if we're not careful, Paul says in Ephesians 4.30, that we can grieve the Spirit. We can frustrate Him. Remember last week in the Hebrews chapter 10? The uh, writer of Hebrews talks about us disobeying Him. So that's clearly possible that the the presence of the Spirit is not going to ensure that we are obediently following. Others might point to Ephesians 2, verse 10, if you know the verse where Paul says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And you might look at that verse and say, well, that seems to suggest that the good works are preordained, that we will automatically have all of these good works that God has preordained. Well, the problem with that view is that Paul's not teaching that the outcome of our work is preordained he's teaching that the course of our work is preordained in other words if i decide to do good works i can't just decide for myself what they are i can't just make it up as, as i go today i've decided that sitting on the couch watching tv and eating a case of candy is a good work so i'll do that today now who gets to decide what is a good work god And a lot of things we think are, quote, good works will end up being burned by fire, as Paul puts it, at the judgment seat, because what we thought was so good was never on God's plan for us. It was of our own desires. A good work, by God's definition, are the ones he has appointed for us since the foundations of the earth. You see, Paul wasn't teaching in Ephesians that we are going to be guaranteed of doing certain things. He says we were appointed to a certain path of good works. Now it's up to us how far we walk down that path whether we serve in the gifting and in the purposes he's ordained. So if we hold the view that true faith always produces works, here are the two doctrinal errors that we risk. And I need to make these points clear because the teaching is so prevalent. I'm not going to name any names. It doesn't suit us to do that. But but there are certainly prominent teachers in the Christian walk today who teach that there will always be works with faith. And if you don't see works, you're looking at someone who's not a believer. But James is directly contending with that, arguing that it's a false view. And when we take that view, we make potentially two doctrinal errors. First, we totally neutralize the power of James chapter 2, don't we? We completely eliminate the purpose of James chapter 2. If it's an inevitability, then why the heck even spend time talking about it? We'll just see it happen when it happens automatically. Slowly but surely, God will make works appear on his own through me, and so I don't need to give much attention to it. What we're doing, if we think that, is we're letting ourselves off the hook that James is working so hard to set in our heart. The hook being we must consciously devote our life to the works that God appoints for us. Why worry so much about passing tests or why worry so much about meeting the needs of people who are hungry or who lack clothing? Because after all, God's going to provide for them somehow. It's all just going to work out in the end. The works are all preordained. I mean, what happens to our sense of urgency if we have this opinion? Well, what would ever cause us to reevaluate our lives or question our decisions if it's all just automatic? Wouldn't we just rest in the the confidence that our faith is just going to bring us there automatically? I use the analogy of a plane on autopilot. We would just take in the scenery, trusting that the plane's just going to get to where it's supposed to go automatically. That's the kind of complacency James is trying to end, that he's trying to deal with. The second problem is even more troubling, though. Here's the second error, and it doesn't take long to explain. When we make works a necessary demonstration of saving faith, we are moving works and faith perilously close to each other in a way that suggests that one is dependent on the other. It begins to to suggest to a believer that there's something they have to do to ensure their own salvation. If we don't act in accordance with our faith, maybe we're not saved. And then the questions start coming, well, what do I have to do in action terms to prove my faith? Because I want to go to heaven and you tell me, Steve, what do I need to do to make sure I go to heaven? Whoa, wait a minute. (laughs) Faith is how you get there, not by work, so that no man may boast. And there is no work you can do that assures your salvation, much less brings it to completion. And so when we make these two things so closely associated that we can't tell the difference between the two, we have moved to a false gospel and that's the danger Of not understanding James properly. Now, fortunately, as we go further in James today, he makes it very clear with two examples out of the Old Testament that this is not an issue of proving your faith, of making it sure through works. Look at James chapter 2, verses 20 through 24. He goes on, he says, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. These verses have long been controversial verses in the church. They were particularly at issue during the Reformation when men were teaching a gospel of works and trying to reconcile what James is saying. But it's actually quite simple. He uses the story here of Abraham sacrificing Isaac on the mountain. That comes out of chapter 22 of Genesis. Now, it's important to keep the chapter straight in this case because it goes directly to the point of James's argument here. He begins again with his thesis in verse 20. Faith is useless without works. He's not saying it's absent. He's not saying it's false or fake. He's just saying it's useless. And then he uses the example here of Abraham. And it's especially important that we understand why he uses this example. Remember, Abraham was declared righteous by his faith in God's promise back in chapter 15 of Genesis. So at an earlier point in his life, recorded in chapter 15 of Genesis, Abraham was given a promise by God, a word. He heard the word. And despite the fact that it seemed impossible on its face, nevertheless, he believed that word from God. He accepted it as truth. And on the basis of that faith, God declared him righteous in chapter 15 of Genesis. But then in chapter 22, God gave Abraham an opportunity to display his faith through good works. And he gave Abraham the specific work that he wanted him to do. He told him to go to the mountain, take your son, your only son whom you love, and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham had a choice, right? His faith had made him righteous already, but now he had a choice in how to act. He could obey or he could disobey, but he chose to obey. And through that obedience, he became a person useful to God in bringing God glory. In verse 21, James says that Abraham was justified by works when he offered up Isaac. Now, as confusing as this verse can be, its proper interpretation is actually fairly easy, and it rests on the understanding of the word justified, on what that word means, both in the original language and in the way we translate it in English. The word always means to declare somebody righteous, to simply declare, to state it. Now, in Genesis 15, God declared Abraham to be righteous on the basis of faith. In chapter 22, Abraham declared himself to be righteous on the basis of his good works. In both cases, it was a declaration. And the second one could never have happened without the first one. God made him righteous and declared it. Abraham declared his own righteousness by his good works. But he didn't make himself righteous He was declaring what God had already made in the earlier moment. But if he had never done that work, then Abraham would have essentially been silent with regard to his own righteousness. If you think about the story of Abraham and his life, and I don't have to recount it all to you, but if you just think about some of the high points of his life, from chapter 15 until chapter 22, he goes to Egypt, he lies about his wife, he lies to Abimelech. If we didn't have chapter 22 in the Bible, we'd all be scratching our heads about why he was such a good guy. Why was he declared the friend of God? I'm not taking him down from his pedestal. What I'm saying is that chapter 22 was an absolutely essential story in the life of Abraham if God was to take his life and use it to his own glory. It's the moment in which he himself, by his works, declared to the world that he was who God said he was. If he had never done it, then that faith, even though it was present, would have been useless. That's all James is saying. When we do our good works... We're making a declaration about who we are and what we believe. And that's what we're called to do. It's not a declaration that can take the place of the one God makes. In fact, it's dependent on the one that God makes. Before we have faith, it's impossible to please God. But after we have faith, it is our obligation to please God and to do it through good works. Works that he has ordained. Finally, James uses one last example of saving faith put to work. In verse 25, he says, In the same way... Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. I don't know if you know the story of Rahab, the prostitute, the harlot. I find it interesting that she's a a heroine in the Bible. She's even mentioned in chapter 11 of Hebrews, the, the hall of faith we call that chapter. And yet her name is not Rahab, That's not the full name, right? The the name is Rahab the harlot. It's interesting that that side of her life was retained even in her name as the Bible reflects on her work. She was a woman who lived in Jericho. And as the nation of Israel is coming into the land under the leadership of Joshua, God tells Joshua that that city is going to fall to him, that he will destroy it because God wants it gone. And Joshua sends spies into the city ahead of his attack to learn about the city and to try to understand what he's facing. As they come into the city, they come to the home of Rahab. And she has, by God's power through the spirit, she has come to believe in the God of, of Israel, the God Jehovah. And she recognizes that when these spies of Israel come, that they are people who represent God's people, the Israelites, And she houses them and protects them and hides them from the king of Jericho who is trying to find them. She does all these things at jeopardy to herself because of a faith she has in Jehovah. And her kindness to those messengers was a work. It was an act, a meaningful act based on her faith in the God of Jehovah, the God of Israel. And when she did this act of kindness, this act of mercy, the spies assure her that because she helped them, she would be saved when the city was destroyed and she, they gave her a way to, to, to hang a sign out, there, out of her window so that she could make clear where she lived and they would protect her. Now, think about what Rahab had as an option in her life. We've talked about Abraham and his option. What was Rahab's option? She could have remained silent, right? She could have withheld from the spies any knowledge that she was an ally, that she was on God's side. She could have just remained silent, sat in her little house. Let them go on their way without her help. She would still have had a belief in God. She still would have been, quote, saved, right? She still would have been ushered into the kingdom with Christ based on a faith. She was not obligated to help them. Because those spies and their mission was not the key to solving the problem of Jericho. God was going to take the walls down of Jericho no matter what happened with those spies. So she had an opportunity. She could have acted. She could not have acted. If she had not acted on her faith to protect the spies, then what would she have lost? Well, among other things, she would have lost her earthly life, wouldn't she? She would have been killed when the city was taken down. Again, it wouldn't have changed her eternal future, but she would have suffered in the sense that her life would have been cut short because of her failure to work and to act in accordance with her faith. James's point here is there are benefits for God's glory when we act on faith and perform good works, but there are also personal benefits in the here and now when we act on our faith. And please don't Go off into some strange corner of theology with me when I say that I'm not suggesting that God is going to make us rich. I'm not saying that we have some windfall coming because we go off and do good works. I'm simply pointing out what scripture points out, that there are consequences when we do not do good works and commensurate with our works. There will be blessing of some kind. God will will shine his face upon us as we work to bring him glory. In Rahab's case, the reward was her life was spared. And her name, by the way, was preserved in scripture and became a part of the line of Christ. She was the mother of Boaz, who through Ruth became parents of the line of David. All because she was willing to act on her faith. I love the fact that James uses Abraham and Rahab. Think about the spectrum that they represent. Now, Abraham was asked to take his son up to the top of the mountain and kill him generally speaking, we're not thinking that that's what God's going to ask us. And I doubt we'd even contemplate doing it if he did, right? And I know there may be days we feel like doing that. But what, a, what an amazing work that Abraham did in the way that he obeyed God on that command. And I'm not saying I could repeat it myself. It seems almost impossible to imagine trying to do that as a man who exemplifies the ultimate in faith. The only man I think who comes close to that is Noah, when God said, spend a hundred years of your life building a gigantic boat in a time when rain had never existed. That's about the only other thing I can think of is being of that magnitude. For anyone who would look at Abraham as the first example and say to themselves, oh, well, sure, Steve, it's easy to point to Abraham. The guy was almost a saint. How could we ever equal that guy? Give me an example I can live with. Give me somebody who I can relate to. And so James says, well, take Rahab the harlot. Is there anyone who can't use her as an example of real life? A woman who is living in sin, but with faith, struggling in that, in that context, in a city of depravity, and along comes the army of God, so to speak, and offers her an opportunity to do good works. You could compare, I guess, our life in the church as sort of that experience of the army of God around us, willing to encourage us, pray for us, and guide us into the good works God has for us. we just got to act on it. We just got to make a decision. I'm not going to be that person who squanders these opportunities and lives my life in the flesh. I'm going to actually act on the faith I know I have and I'm going to serve God. That's, that's what Rahab is. This, this testimony of a woman who could step above her circumstances and act in a way that glorified God even though from her point of view she probably wondered what could she do for God. How could she ever be someone who could serve God in a meaningful way? In the case of Rahab, I want you to think about what she did. Think about what she did, what her actual work was. Sacrifice her son? No. Build a giant boat? No. Accommodate a couple of strangers in her home one night. That's it. Now, it was risky. It it wasn't insignificant. But was it hard? Was it beyond our abilities? I love the Rahab example because it just points out that sometimes what God is asking us to do, what, what a good work means for us, is something simple. That simple moment when you have a thought in the back of your head that you need to do something for someone or give somebody something or help somebody in some small way. We were at the beach a couple of days ago with my kids and we saw a couple of older ladies who would come to the beach together and they trying to set up a tent on the beach. You ever tried to do that in the wind on the beach with just two people? My kids and I were sitting in our little tent. The conversation was so sad, honestly. It was, I wonder if we should get up and help them. And then... Nah, you know, they they probably got this under control. They've probably done this before. You know, 20 minutes later, they're still struggling with it. You know, you see the problem with that moment? The problem with that moment is it would have taken a small effort to get up and go over and help them for just a few seconds. Maybe that's the opportunity God would use for us to talk about something more meaningful. I don't know. Maybe it was nothing more than just help. That's Rahab. So don't make it feel as if what God is asking us to do is so beyond the reach of what we can do in our walk as Christians that it will take us weeks and weeks to get up the nerve to do it. There'll be those two, but most of the time, it's the simple stuff. It's just a life of doing it consistently that glorifies God. As James reminds us in verse 26, a dead body is a very real thing, but it's entirely useless. It's like your appendix. It exists, but what good is it? And most of the time, it just gets in the way. Don't live a life that's just real, but useless. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we are uh, striving as every time we go, every time we go into your your text, Father, to be true to it and to be honest with ourselves about it. The world offers many places on Sunday morning where instead of the hard truths of Scripture, we're we'll be fed with the milk of easy living and, and happiness. And Father, I. I know you have a good purpose in all of those places and you will work through them in, in the ways you desire, but we feel convicted, Father, that the way you choose to call us into a life that pleases you is, is not through platitudes and, and meaningless banter, Father. It's, it's through the hard text of Scripture, the meaningful and difficult lessons that you've provided in your Word. So, Father, I pray that, that they those lessons have been intended for us this morning to lift us up, that first we must be on our knees before we can stand with you in in glory. And we ask, Father, that this process of bringing us low has been only a part of lifting us up in the end and that we are convicted so that we may choose to do differently. And Father, we are a small gathering. We are limited in many ways, but we are unlimited in our access to the Spirit And we are certainly not limited, Father, in the power you make available through him and and through your word. And so we ask, Father, you would use that power mightily in our lives, first to convict us and draw us to you in a way that is glorifying and pleasing. But then, Father, as the body of Christ gathered here individually is, is made new in Christ and then sanctified by your word, washed by the water of the word, Father, as that process takes place, I pray we would be bound together and strengthened as a whole that we could be mighty in our work for you. Don't let us just be content, Father, to sit, listen, and go home, but drive us, Father, into some action, some work, some thing that pleases you so that our testimony, Father, would be that we declare ourselves righteous by faith, by our works. And then, Father, I pray that we would meet you soon, for we do desire, Father, for that moment, and then in that moment we would hear we pleased you. Let that be our testimony, Father. And send us away, Father, in peace and in love and in a desire to to represent you outside this building. And if it's your will, Father, I pray we come back next week. And perhaps, Father, with others who you might call into this same place. We pray these things, Father, trusting in you. And in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.